You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, before we get started, I have just a few pieces of housekeeping. First, we're all struggling financially right now due to the pandemic, the impending financial apocalypse that we're all in right now. So... My pay has been considerably cut. I'm no longer teaching yoga. That was a huge portion of my income. I'm working less as an essential worker to reduce my exposure to the public. So I'm relying on my patrons now, more now than ever. And if you are able to afford to support small independent creators... If, you're able, if you have some small independent creators in your life who you love, you listen to their show every week, please do take the time to support them. Not just me, but as many small independent creators as you can. And the way you can do that for me, the way you can join my patrons number is by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar a month or $5 a month, you get extra content every week. You get to hear uh, my patrons-only podcast, House of Heretics, with the Christian minister, Timothy. Uh, We sometimes have challenging and interesting conversations, or you get to hear all about my butthole or fisting, you know, all sorts of things that you don't want to hear on the main show. You get to hear that on House of Heretics. It's just for patrons. I leave, you know, my, my horror sex stories just for my patrons. And I traumatize the poor pastor who has to do the show with me. So if that interests you, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. I understand if you are not able to give right now. It's hard for everyone. I need you to first and foremost take care of yourself, take care of your family. And if you just don't have the margin to give right now, there are other ways to support the show. Please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to this show, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps enormously. It helps our digital overlords take notice of my show and recommend it to others. If you aren't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe to the show. That helps a lot too. And finally, another way to support the show, go to thesatanictemple.tv. They are a sponsor of my show. If you're interested in occult rituals, new religious movements, weird kinky stuff, then you can sign up. You can use my code at checkout. It is SACRETENSION, all caps, no space, and you will get one month free. There is a link in the show notes. TST TV has all kinds of documentaries, feature films, live streams, all kinds of awesome stuff to keep you entertained while you are in quarantine. Oh, and I forgot to uh, to thank my latest patrons. Let me do that real fast. For this show, I have to thank Richard, Jay, 
Helena, William, Lucy Vor, Renee, Will, JC, Kurt, and Azriel. Thank you so much. You are my personal lords and saviors, and you are keeping this show going. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Katie Herzog to the show. Katie, hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. So no relation to Werner Herzog, I, I assume. You know, not that I know of, but okay. he actually has a sort of uncanny resemblance to my dad. I saw a picture <laughs> of him. I'm serious. I saw a picture of him as a young man the other day, and it was like looking at my at my father. I, it might have been a mustache. They both had that like 1970s, 1980s mustache. Right. So it could have just been that. But uh, but as far as I know, no uh, no shared DNA. Great. Okay. So I'm taking a bit of a risk having you on my show, just to be honest. I mean, you, prob- <laughs> you probably hear that all the time because, you know, uh, in on Twitter, on like leftist internet, of which I'm very much a part, I'm very much a leftist. I know that that's like a right talking point, you know, like I know, um, oh, what's that blank doll eyed gay guy who uh, who's like, I'm a libertarian. Um uh, 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 not, oh, what's his name? I can't, Dave Rubin. I know that that's like Dave Rubin's whole thing. Like I'm actually a liberal. So I know that that's a talking point for a lot of people on the right, but I am actually a progressive. Like I'm actually very far left and within far left spaces, you're a pretty radioactive person. And so tell us some about who you are and what you do. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. It's sort of ironic because I am also of the left. I yes. have started eschewing uh, labels in recent years because I, I think labels are, are problematic, um, mm. to borrow a term from uh, from my woke friends. Um, and, and I don't mean problematic in, in that sense. I mean, I think that labels actually can hinder people's ability to think clearly when your identity is wrapped up in being a leftist or being a rightist or being a liberal or a classical liberal or whatever, or an activist, um, I think that it becomes really difficult to evaluate policy, evaluate movements um, on their own merits and not sort of have your, you know, your own identity wrapped up into this. So for that reason, I don't even consider myself, I don't call myself a feminist or an environmentalist or anything like that anymore. Um, But I am, but politically, um, I am, uh, I am of the left. I, I vote for, I vote for, you know, I wrote for Democrats because that's the choices that are, are provided to us, at least in national and um, national races. But yeah, as you mentioned, I, I do have sort of this radioactive and I think unfair reputation among um, among among the left. And and I'll, I'll just sort of tell you the backstory here. Until COVID, I was a staff writer. I am I am by the way a, a native of of Western North Carolina, not far from from where you are. Hooray! Um, Yes. And, uh, and, and so my politics, I went to school at UNC Asheville. My politics are sort of informed by that environment. Yeah. Um, it's been a long time since I lived there, but I was there when, uh, like my first girlfriend was a campaigner for Brownie. What's, what's Brownie's last name? The, the famed city council, um, or maybe former city council member. of. I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. But I know who you're talking about. Right. So this was at this point almost twenty years ago. Uh, regardless, so I, I I've been living in Seattle for about the past five years after living for most of my life in, in various areas of North Carolina. I moved out here to write for Grist, which is a a website, a digital magazine that covers mostly climate change. Um, and so that's sort of what my what my background was was writing mostly about climate change and policy and and things in sort of conservation and environmentalism. And I was laid off from that job in 2017 uh, in 
my first round of media layoffs. And I started freelancing for The Stranger, which is Seattle's Alt Weekly. And The Stranger is a paper that was founded by the guy who created The Onion and Dan Savage. And, and so you can imagine what the sort of um, the vibe of The Stranger is. It was at its height, it was satirical and cutting and funny and, and extremist, but in, in sort of a good way, I, I, I thought at the time. Um, and that has, that has changed a lot in recent years, in part because of these market forces. All weeklies basically don't exist anymore, like much of local media. Um, but also the, the tenor of the paper changed as the tenor of sort of um, liberal and leftist thought has changed. What became acceptable to say became very constricted. And so one of my first big pieces for the paper as a freelancer was called The Detransitioners. And it was a reported piece on a small but growing uh, population of people who had transitioned from one gender to another and then changed their mind and transitioned back. And I was interested in this primarily because I think it's an you know, I guess who can say like why anybody's interested in any one thing? I mean, maybe it's a it's I guess that that question really comes down to like does free will even exist? But uh, which I sort of maintain that it doesn't. But I was interested in this primarily because I'm interested in heretics and I'm interested in people who stand up or somehow become alienated from their own tribe. And the detransitioners I spoke to. They all told me that without fail, some of whom had transitioned in the 90s, some of them had transitioned recently, they all told me that detransitioning was socially more difficult than transitioning was in the first place. And that's because they were they their communities shunned them, uh, the queer community shunned them. And I found that really interesting. Um, and so I, I profiled a few people. Um, there was a lot of, uh, I wrote a lot about the science and, and the, the research on what we know about transition and detransition, which isn't a lot, to be honest with you, even though this has been studied for now about three decades, over three decades. And the piece wasn't, it wasn't an opinion piece. It was just like straight journalism. I, I had a, I made sure to get the voices of happily transitioned people in the piece, which was very important. I made sure to talk about the potential for the right to co-opt these stories and uh, use them for their own for their own aims, and this was at a, at a time when there were bathroom bills across the country. Not as Washington State is not North Carolina. We did not have a, a yeah. you know a, um, a Pat McCrory trying to to ban trans people from using the bathroom that they that they preferred, at least in the governor's office. But so this was at a time when lots of trans people were were you know rightfully afraid of these policies spreading across across American states. But the, I talked about that, and I had trans sensitivity readers. The piece was really not uh, at all a condemnation of trans healthcare. Um, it was just a story about these people who went through a remarkable experience. And there was a crazy, crazy backlash to this to this story. So so before we get to that, yeah, I mean, just, just to talk briefly about that piece you wrote. So I read that piece just because I was like, okay, I want to have Katie Herzog on the show. I need to make sure that, she, that you know, I need to, to know what degree of, of monstrous I'm having on the show. Um, but I read it. I'm not, I am not trans. I am cisgender, but I am gay. Uh, not that that gives me, you know, a a special perspective when it comes to trans issues. But I read it and and found it a very humane piece. I found it thoughtful. I found it compassionate. I found it, like you said, it was just straight journalism. And it and it, it you know, coming from my you know limited queer perspective. It's just an interesting human story. 
and I and I want to know these stories. And that doesn't mean that it's a majority. It's a very I think it, it's probably a very, very, very small minority of people who do detransition. But it's still an interesting story. And and to me, it reading it, I was just like, this just sounds like human nature. You know, human sexuality, human gender is so complex, so fluid. You know, I know gay I know I know gay people who who fully experienced gay orientation who and it was an authentic gay orientation that they experienced. And then almost through no will of their own, it shifted. And and you know that's just that's just the variety of human experience. You know, I'm kind of a garden variety faggot. You know, I'm just like I'm not. I I, I will probably always be fixed in my orientation. Maybe most gay people are, but there is this variance in human experience, and and that's what I and those stories are interesting to me. And I want to be able to hear those stories without lending credence to things like conversion therapy, anti-trans policy. You know what I'm saying? And so that's that's what I heard read. That's what I read in your article. I also just have to say I'm not trans. And so if you did like massively fuck something up in there, I wouldn't know. You know, I don't. I don't have the ear to be able to to hear something got fucked up or not <laughs> in, in your article, but I don't think there was, you know. And, right. I mean, um, there wasn't in all of the backlash, and uh, I guess I'll tell you briefly what happened. So there was, of course, the like mandatory uh, Twitter storm where I was getting piled on by thousands of people, most of whom I don't think had actually read the piece. Right. And I heard this later. I got I became friends with a trans woman who, uh, you know a writer who who piled on who accused me or who called me trash and told me later that she hadn't read the piece before she did this it just becomes this rumor mill where katie herzog is bad it's a bad piece nobody had ever actually like most people hadn't read it and then you know the, so the, there's a twitter firestorm and then it became it went offline um so these these people in seattle these activists whose identities i don't actually know put up flyers around my neighborhood, around Seattle, calling me transphobic and the Pete's transphobic. They made stickers calling me. And this is actually, this has gone on over the past three years. So there are still, there are new versions of stickers around Seattle calling me transphobic, calling me a Nazi, calling me alt Yeah, wasn't there like some graffiti that you were talking yes. about on your podcast where it's like yes. Katie Herzog is trash or something like that? There was a, so my, my office at The Stranger, so before I was laid off, um, I worked in Capitol Hill, which is at the, in The Stranger office, which is the, uh, you know, the queer, historically queer neighborhood in Seattle. Um, I lived close to this area and my office was a, uh, or the stranger office was commandeered as part of Chaz, um, yeah. the Seattle, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, and so it was. A, it's right down the street from the police station, and so it became it became really the hub of these of these these wild protests in Seattle, where they took over, they commandeered the police station, and uh, you know set up this like six block zone that was free of policing. Um, it, you know, people can look into that. It's a pretty fascinating story. It is. Um, anyway, so my office was in that. And on uh, one of the early days of the protest, somebody somebody graffitied fuck Herzog on the door of the of the stranger. I no longer work there, so uh, I didn't have to walk by it on my way to work. Thank God. Um, but so I became very radioactive within Seattle, Seattle's queer community, which is odd because I'm a part of it or was a part of it. And I don't think any of it holds up to scrutiny if you even do the slightest bit of digging. I mean, I'm accused of transphobia all the time. And when I ask people to find the most transphobic thing I've ever written, they cannot find it because the evidence doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. But it doesn't exist because yeah. I'm not transphobic. I mean, I, I've, 
I came out when I was a, a you know a sophomore in college in Asheville. I have known trans people since the, I worked at Malaprops, the lesbian bookstore. Oh my in god, Asheville. I love Malaprops. Yes. yes, I worked with. <laughs> oh trans, my god. You know, yeah, I've known I've known trans people for much long for half of my life. I've been friends with trans people, which I, I do not think is true of you know sort of most the you know younger folks today. I'm not transphobic. It's just like. I yeah. can say this as many times as I want, and, and it, it will not change anybody's mind. But when asked to provide evidence for my sins, nobody can do it. Um, and that doesn't matter. So so there's something really interesting here that I that has been an ongoing concern of mine. And this kind of touches on the broader topic of online bullshit. When, when this punitive... Uh, the, I, how do I want to put this? When, when the pylons the the punitive mob the uncritical punitive vilifying essentializing mob turns on someone it's ironic to me when the person who is at the bottom of that pylon is themselves a queer person is themselves a minority right and and this is that's a part of this story that i find really really interesting like i am okay if you're jk rowling and you literally live in a fucking palace in and you live in a palace in uh europe somewhere and you're a millionaire and you're uh, one of the most powerful women in the world that's a whole conversation that we can have at some point but it it's different she is powerful she, that doesn't mean all of the abuse towards her is warranted but she doesn't rely on her own on on the queer community for support and stability i do <laughs> like i rely on like i have relied on the queer community for my stability for my safety for my sense of community which is one reason why i am so fucking terrified of twitter because it makes me feel so incredibly vulnerable and i think that is true for a lot of minorities i mean you're a woman you are queer i am queer and and I am so much more terrified of my fellow queer leftists than I am of a lot of people on the right on Twitter. Yeah, well, that's the thing about cancel culture is that, I, you know, this phenomenon is evolving. I, I, the term is new. I don't think the phenomenon itself is new. But from my observation, and I'm not the first person to say this, you can only be canceled by your own side, right? Milo yeah. Yiannopoulos was not canceled because leftists hated him. He, he was canceled because he finally did something that pissed off the right. Yes. Um, something that I thought was actually pretty minor. I mean, he talked about the uh, about age differences in gay relationships, which is something that people might not want to talk about, but is something that has existed forever. Um, less so now because, you know, like there are young gay people who are out and they can find each other um but you know in the in the 80s and 90s if you were living in a small town and you were a young gay boy and there was nobody else around you this was a thing that happened anyway um uh, unimportant aside but you can only be canceled by your own side so there's no and there's also it like i have been dragged on twitter by crazy maga freaks and by social justice warriors and by people I agree with. And there's only one of those that actually has an impact on me. And that's when it comes from my political people, I, I feel a political allegiance to. Um, yeah, same. It doesn't matter if, if a bunch of people with peppy frog uh, avatars drag me on Twitter. It has like no emotional, emotional impact on my life at all. And it would also have no impact on my work. Because 
my like my former editors at the stranger my bosses if i were being dragged by a bunch of maga freaks they wouldn't give a shit they don't care they can ignore that but if i'm being dragged by a bunch of people who say that they list that they read the paper who who are sort of um the demographic that the paper cares about it does have an impact and that's the other thing about this this phenomenon is what's happening right now is really this these cultural boycotts target people's employment. And because we live in the United States, a place where employment is tied in with health insurance, losing your job, losing your ability to work can be a, a literal death sentence for people. And it's and it's t- so, yeah, let's talk about that, because it's also just taking advantage of the at will policies in the United States, which is fucking anti-leftism that that is it is in, in my opinion that is so i mean it's just taking advantage of the at will system that we have here that just estranges and alienates and ruins so many people there's no due process and that ruins people and so then we have a bunch of online quote-unquote leftists who are taking advantage of this regressive disgusting employment system to basically get at the people they don't like right right and And this is not like you know it is it is totally gross it's hypocritical and this is the reason that i find myself oftentimes defending people i don't like defending people whose beliefs i find odious because you you need to be consistent about this right and if you're and i you're right at will employment if we had policies that uh, protected employees from retaliation this would not be as big a deal. Or if we had a social safety net where you exactly. know, if you're fired from your job, that doesn't mean you're going to lose your house and your health insurance and your family is going to be totally fucked. Well, the consequences just wouldn't be as high. Um, but yeah, there is something incredibly rich about people with, uh, you know, rose emojis in their Twitter bios. You know, people who who brag about their leftist bona f- uh, you know values, um, also trying to get people fired for for having opinions they disagree with. So one of the things that I really that frustrates me that I struggle with is the word cancel culture itself. Do you feel like do you feel like the term cancel culture at this point is useful? Do you, do you feel like it it is a helpful term or should it or because. M- kind of my intuition on this is cancel culture is so so vague and weaponized and describes things that might not even be aligned with what the word expresses you know like a a massive pile on on twitter it's fucking awful and traumatic is it a cancellation though you know there's this vagueness in the term that i struggle with and i wonder if it would just be better to talk about the specifics of what the word means like if we are talking about pylons let's t- let's talk about pylons if if we're talking about if we're talking about people trying to get you fired let's talk about that specifically is it helpful at all to even use the word cancel culture at this point yeah that that's a good question i think the term is useful because we need a term to describe this phenomenon Mm. but you know donald trump has now weaponized it he has a unique ability to take a word and redefine it for his own ends you know fake news was a phenomenon before donald trump redefined it to be every every news story he doesn't like about himself and cancel culture is a real thing that does not involve just people who you know donald trump doesn't like so the term itself it's vague and people, different people think of it as different things. And you will still see a lot of people, particularly people on the left, say things like cancel culture doesn't exist. Cancel culture is just another word for criticism. For me, for me, the distinction between cancel culture and a call out is the is the the effort or 
when the, the effort or the result is someone getting fired, uh, someone losing their home, not it's not just reputational damage. Uh, you know, it's not just the pylon. And and the okay. pylon, I will say, as someone who has been uh, at the bottom of a pylon, it can be emotionally incredibly difficult. It becomes it's one of these things that becomes easier the the, the more times it happens. Um, so now when I get piled on, I just like mute the thread and like go about my day. Um, but especially <laughs> if you're not someone who 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 is who has put themselves in the public eye, if you're not someone, if you're just a random person who, you know, becomes the story, the character of the day on Twitter, it is incredibly stressful. Like Justine Sacco, for example, several, several years ago, who was, who was suddenly trending on Twitter for a joke that was misunderstood. Right. So, so public shaming is, is the mechanism that we're really talking about here. And, and public shaming is in no way new. What is new is, is social media in the ease at which thousands of people can join a, a campaign or a pile on at basically no cost to themselves. And, you know, I think one of the one of the uh, characteristics of cancel culture is that the punishment tends to 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 be uh, it doesn't reflect the severity of the crime. Oftentimes, yes, Um, it's out of proportion. Right. And so I, I think you're right. The term is flawed, is deeply flawed, flawed. But we need a term to describe this thing that is happening. Um, I don't think public shaming quite does it. I don't think call out culture quite does it. So I think it's a handy term, but it is clearly one that um, that is, you know, the definition is sort of in the eye of the beholder, um, including, with, you know, people who continue to maintain that it doesn't exist at all. Let's talk about the it doesn't exist thing, because on the one hand, I I hear their point, which is very often, well, you know, powerful people are are now closer to their audience in a way that has never happened before. Free speech is not being suppressed. Uh, we now have more free speech because of the Internet than ever before, um, which which has a kind of intuitive sense to me. And and there are times when I when the criticism of cancel culture is these are just people voicing their opinion about your work in a way that you may might not have been as closely aware of as you used to. And there's a way in which that makes sense to me. However, I also get frustrated because it also feels like gaslighting. You know, Nathan J. Robinson at Current Affairs, I, I generally love his writing. I think he's great. But he's he's done this series of articles that just really frustrate me. And maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm misreading him. But basically, there there's like this refusal to admit that there is a problem on on the online left. And that feels like gaslighting to me because I have experienced it. I have witnessed it. And I have friends. I have content creators who have been fucking demolished and and them saying, oh, this is just the consequences of your actions. Feel it. It feels like gaslighting to me. It feels like just playing into the abuse more. Does that make sense? It, it does. I don't understand why people, especially people on the left, pre- pretend that this thing doesn't exist. I mean, I think a better argument is to say this is not a phenomenon that is, that is exclusive. I mean, it feels defensive. I think a more honest criticism from the Nathan J. Robinsons of the world would uh, would be to say cancel culture exists because it obviously does, but we like it. Um, but we think it's it's a valid form of, of registering dissent. Um, mm. You know, but that's not what we hear. Instead, we hear people say this this thing doesn't exist. And when other people can see it, it in real time happening, 
it does feel like gaslighting. So I'm not really sure why why this has why this you know um, people maintain this. Or, you know, another, like, honest critique would be to say this is not purely a phenomenon of the left, which I think is very true. Absolutely. The right is absolutely prone to these sort of punitive campaigns as well, maybe even more so. It's just that we live in these, in these you know, these echo chambers and these bubbles so that we can't even see it happening on the right. Um, mm. I, you know, I, 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 like you, I don't, uh, I don't go to any sort of, um, you know, Christian church. Um, but you know, my, my wife is, uh, is, was raised evangelical Christian. If you want to talk about people being canceled, being cast out from their homes, go to an evangelical church and say that you're gay, you know, this is a, or, or a Mormon church or whatever. And I, and I do think that, that lots of Christians have become more tolerant in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, this exists on the right. It absolutely exists on the right. And so I think that's a valid criticism of the of the idea that this is purely a leftist phenomenon. But that being said, I do think it is accelerated on the left. I think it's more visible on the left, in part because the left has more cultural power than the right does. That was one of the things that was addressed in the now infamous The Letter, the, the, letter. the capital T letter, capital L, from Harper's that you signed. And, you know, my take—we don't—I'm so not interested in talking about that letter because every single fucking podcast on the planet has talked about it at this point. I basically just found it very, like, milk toast and boring. I'm like, yeah, sure, this is fine. And I do not understand <laughs> the controversy yeah. that erupted from it. I'm like, you know, this is, this is just kind of the most broad and boring statement statement imaginable but one of the things that it said was this is these behaviors are mostly associated with the right you know and it and it kind of made that point like these these are things that we have come to expect from the right but they're now permeating um are there aspects of cancel culture that that you would find more that that you find more pro- oop my kitten just fell off the table i'm sorry kid <laughs> um my are there aspects of cancel culture that you would find actually more helpful for example boycotting or no longer giving your 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 service or 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 your money to a particular business artist etc that is also often categorized as cancel culture you know for example me personally there is a musician who i love i have listened to this musician my whole life well it's it's becoming pretty apparent that this musician has done some pretty horrific sexual abuse and i'm just like you know what i don't want to listen to this person anymore other people can i don't care if other people do but me personally i'm not going to stream their music anymore so i haven't and some people would look at that and say well you're engaging in cancel culture so are there some parts of cancel culture that you find more appropriate sure i think that's that's a good point you know all right take someone like uh like michael jackson or r kelly uh, although i think michael jackson is sort of an interesting case because it's not like you you uh not streaming him on on Spotify is going to have any impact on Michael Jackson. Right. He, Michael Jackson can't be hurt. So if anybody would be hurt there, it would be the, uh, you know, be his his children, you know, his heirs. So I think that is that is one thing to consider when we're making these decisions about who to boycott. No, I, I think that cancel culture is a form of cultural boycott. To me, the difference is, or at least the part that makes it sort of cancel culture, is not saying I'm not going to listen to Michael Jackson again anymore. It's saying nobody can listen to Michael Jackson anymore. Okay. It's saying Spotify needs to take him off his off the streaming platform. It's saying um, 
his CDs need, or let's take J.K. Rowling, you know, a, a, a living example, um, who has been accused, I think, unfairly of transphobia, even though I don't entirely agree on some of her perspectives on this. When you actually read what she's read, you know, she's often accused of things like trying to erase the existence of trans people. That is not what she's doing. Anyway, so it's not saying I'm not going to buy Harry Potter books anymore. It's saying nobody can buy Harry Potter, Potter books anymore. No mm. stores can sell Harry Potter books anymore. It's inserting yourself between between the artist and the consumer and trying to control what other people do, which I find to be, that's a conservative value. And it's not one that I that I like to see um, proliferating on the left. And I think that it is. Um, that said, you know, boycotts can be viable and they can change, uh, they can change companies, you know, like Exxon Valdez, right? Let's, let's, ta- let's take the Exxon Valdez oral spill. Nothing happened with that. But if, let's say, that people had started boycotting Exxon um, and that had made Exxon, you know, uh, you know, change their practices or boycotting, you know, the gas industry entirely, um, which would be incredibly difficult because we still have to live our lives um, because, you know, the fossil fuel industry refuses to uh, to. Um, you know, grapple with climate change. Well, would that be would that would that be positive? I would say that it, I would say that it would. So, you know, these cases are complicated, and I think we need to sort of take them one by one, as opposed to saying all boycotts are good or all boycotts are bad. You brought up J.K. Rowling and Michael Jackson, two very different situations, but I think that there's a, a similar dilemma in with both of them, which is, in a way, both of them are utterly uncancelable. In that. You know, turn on any pop song composed after the reign of Michael Jackson, you know, turn on any pop song written after Thriller and you will hear his influence. Jackson is ubiquitous. He has created our modern pop music world. And and what do we do as a culture? I mean, same with J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling almost single-handedly created the young adult genre. You know, the young adult genre would not be what it is today without J.K. Rowling. Harry Potter is the reason that young adult fiction is, is marketable f- and has been for the past two or three decades or however long it's been now, you know? And, and so it's the same with JK Rowling. Uh, and, and I really think that these, that this presents hard cultural problems that we have to face, you know, we have to face that dragon and really just not have a, not have an easy answer to it. I think the temptation on Twitter is to, is to just have an, have a simple answer to this cultural dilemma of what happens when one of our, one of the architects of our modern world is an alleged child rapist. Like, what do we do with that? And what and the and what we should do with it is have a long, earnest conversation. We should right. write well, books yeah. about I it. I mean, you know, I think what should happen in the case of Michael Jackson is that there should be, and I'm not just talking about documentaries. I think there should be like real investigation into into the claims against him. Yeah, um, which you know. There were at the time, and they've been sort of relitigated in, in recent years. But I mean, Michael Jackson also can't be canceled because he's dead, um, right? You know, and and if you are not someone who believes in the afterlife, well, he's not like looking down, um, you know, sort of wringing his hands about his about his his cancellation now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a big issue, and what I see on Twitter are people just wanting to have simple solutions to big, complicated problems. And it just doesn't work like that, you know? Um, well, I, I want to say one more, one more thing absolutely, about, please about do. J.K. Rowling and about the letter. So as you noted, I was one of the signatories of this of this Harper's letter. 
And a lot of the criticism of the letter was that this is just powerful people, which I I, I, I love that people lumped me into the category of powerful people. Um, <laughs> yes, that was hilarious. Very flattering. That very was, flattering. That was really yeah. hilarious. Right. Like, that, yeah. You know, that this is just powerful people trying to protect themselves, protect their, their place in, um, in the hierarchy. Well, it really wasn't because the reality is J.K. Rowling cannot be canceled. Steven Pinker cannot be canceled. I, in some respects, cannot be canceled because I am funded by patrons. Um, I cannot be fired any longer. I can only be, I, I can take a financial hit, but it will it will take lots of people sort of divesting from me. I would have to piss off a lot more people um, mm. than just, you know, my boss is deciding to fire me if it, is, is it would if I just, you know, had a, had a regular job. Um, so for me, the reason I signed the letter was not because I'm worried about my own reputation. I don't think my reputation can get that much lower, to be honest with you. It's about other people. It's about people, I hear from people every single day who work in universities and media and tech and other white collar, primarily white collar industries, um, which I think also tells you something about um, about about this fight in the, in the first place. Who Who's paying attention? Um, mm. How much should we really be paying attention to this when it's, you know, when it's these sort of PMC people who are who are getting targeted not entirely that that's that's there are working class people who have also fallen afoul of cancel culture for sure but it's about the reason i signed the letter was really because of those people people who do not have podcasts who do not have independent funding who don't have a voice who also feel like they cannot say what they think and i'm not talking about like you know uh holocaust denialism or or overt racism or anything like that. People who are concerned about free speech and feel terrified that if they say the wrong thing on Facebook, if they if they accidentally, you know, say the wrong word, then they're going to get publicly shamed and possibly lose their jobs. And I think that was the motivation for many people who signed the letter. I do not think Steven Pinker or J.K. Rowling are worried about their own jobs. And I'm not worried about my own job. It was really about other people. Um, but yes, the criticism was often just this is powerful people trying to protect their own asses. What do you think is the mechanism by which this all happens? This this can't this um culture of canceling. Why do you think it exists? Well, I think part of it is human nature. There for one thing, the desire to be part of something. It's fun to be a part of a mob. Um, mm. And this is something that I sort of struggle with all the time because I'm I'm very vocal on Twitter. I'm unfortunately an active user of the platform. And when I see something egregiously stupid, or in my case, the thing that that really sort of um, sort of gets me is uh, is hypocrisy. When I see someone, especially some like you know blue check mark, just like a, like for instance a leftist trying to get people fired uh, for thought crime, oftentimes. It makes me mad, and I want nothing more than to quote tweet this person. And what might happen then? the The goal isn't to start a mob, but the goal is to criticize, and and this can result in a mob. So I I struggle with that all the time. My own my own sort of um desire to take part in it, but also the knowledge that this is uh that this is wrong and it's making the world a worse place. So I think that's part of it, and I think this is um social media rewards rewards. You know, you get the sort of quick hit the top the dopamine or the serotonin i'm not sure which trans neurotransmitters connected to twitter like <laughs> um, but i think that's part of it um and i think there's also something just inherently people tend well i don't know i don't know about uh, if this is just a human nature thing but i think the desire to be a part of something a, a punitive impulse i think those are all sort of deeply ingrained in us and i also think that that the trump 
election had something to do with this because there was such a, I think, justified fear that he was going to usher in totalitarianism and authoritarianism and fascism into the into the government, um, into the United States, into the, into society, that a lot of people want to feel like they are on the right side of history and their way of being on the right side of history. And I use this in broad quotation marks is to drag people on Twitter. You know, I, I don't think that history will prove that this is the right side of history in, um, in that sense. But I think that that's also a part of it. So you have all of these compounding factors, the rise of social media, the Trump election, human nature, which gets us to the sort of perfect storm that we're in today. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, just thinking about my own life, there, I remember this scene from the movie Doubt, where um and and granted i don't know if i have if i made this scene up because i was on some pretty heavy drugs at the time when i watched it and it was years ago so i might have just completely made up this scene but it there's that there's the scene where you know meryl streep the mother superior you know she hates this new priest and is trying to condemn him and one of the younger nuns says you just don't like him you don't like that he has modern pens. You don't like that he is modern. You don't like him. That's what all of this is about. Did I make that scene up? Oh, I don't remember, but okay. it sounds uh, okay. it sounds like something that would have happened. Yeah, in the film. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I maybe I made that scene up, but it had a big impact on me when I was, you know, on on super intense pain medication, and I was addled out of my brain. So hopefully I didn't make that up. But I keep thinking about that scene because it just there are so many times when I when I see a pile on on Twitter and I try to find the motivation behind it. What is the real criticism here? And so often I don't find a real criticism. And I think so very often it, it just comes down to you don't like this person. Right. You know, right. And, and I yeah, go on, please. I mean, think about it. Like, if you have a friend and your friend does something that you think is wrong, truly wrong, maybe not egregious, but just immoral, unethical, whatever, what is going to be the more effective way to get your friend to reform his or her or their behavior? Going to your friend privately and saying, like, look, buddy, I love you, but I think you fucked up this one up or blasting this person on social media. Yeah. We both know what's what is more likely to be effective. It is not the public humiliation. And you so that's the other thing do. about this is that it, it does it is not an effective way of reforming individual behavior, except if you're if the goal is to get people to stop saying what they think. And the you only take the latter option if you just don't like that person. Totally. Right? Totally. You know, yeah, like, yeah. So, and, yeah. And like thinking about thinking about a lot of the people who I have struggled with over the years online. Okay, so for example, I don't like Sam Harris. I th- I think he's arrogant. I think he's an asshole kind of. I, I don't like his personality. You know, I listen to his show and he just rubs me the wrong way. And and thinking about it really deeply i i've and you know i have been for a long time very anti-harris but then i have to really think about it and i have to ask myself how much of this is because i'm critiquing his ideas and how much of this is because i just find him an asshole i just he just rubs me the wrong way right and and i have to be really cognizant of that like and and there are and when i think about it there are things that harris has said and done that i disagree with and I can talk about those. But 
when I go into that conversation, am I being motivated by the goal of of getting down to the bottom of these ideas and understanding, or am I just wanting to bash Harris? And you know, I so I've been going through a Twitter purge lately. So I've I've deleted Twitter off of my phone and I only scroll it on my laptop now. And I've been doing this for several weeks now. And I have noticed a scary change in my brain. My my dis yeah, I really have. Oh my God, it's it's huge. It's really subtle, but it's huge. My disgust response is lower to people. And you know, mm-hmm. I feel like I've always consciously, you know, pursued values of conversation and and um, you know, resisting purity and all of that kind of stuff. But now I'm actually now okay, take your co-host, uh, Jesse Single. On, on your show, Blocked and Reported. I think I would have seen the hatred against Jesse Single, and I just would have dismiss, dismissed him. I would have just been like, you know, it would have triggered my disgust response, and I just would have completely dismissed him. And and I don't and I don't do that anymore. It's like my disgust response is lower, and I'm more likely to just be and people I blatantly disagree with, like um like uh you know rad fems I will or or libertarian conservative libertarians or what have you. I'm like okay, I'm going to hear this person out. Like I'm going to actually go out try to find a podcast, and I'm going to listen to this two hour and a half show, and I'm going to hear this person out, and and that is totally new for me. I it and it's this weird shifting of my brain after kind of this Twitter detox and and it really worries me because it makes me worry if if it is even possible to find to come to any kind of justice on social media as it currently stands. I feel like I am more just now in my thinking because I'm able to hear people out. I'm able to get over that disgust response. It makes me a more just person. And it really makes me worry about our current landscape, you know, where we're working through the uh, killing of George Floyd. We're working through racism. We're working through income inequality. But we're doing all that on Twitter. And it really worries me if it is even possible now to to de- to have any kind of justice via Twitter. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's possible. OK. I, I, <laughs> in, the, in, in, in the long arc of history, maybe we'll look at back at Twitter and say Twitter did. I mean, personally, for me, Twitter has been great. I mean, Twitter is it's a it's a terrible place, but it also I am in the my It has been good for my career. Um, as an individual. That said, hmm. I think on the whole, we will find, much like religion, that on an individual level, religion or Twitter might be helpful. It might give you uh, a boost to your reputation in the case of Twitter. It might give you, in the case of religion, it might give you some some solace about not worrying about what happens after you die. But in the aggregate, I think that we're going to find that it, that social media has been much, uh, has had a terrible influence on, on society. And not just in terms of what Twitter has done to our ability to have conversations, but also the election of Donald Trump, which I think uh, Twitter largely enabled, at least giving him this this platform. Mm. Um, and also what social media, not Twitter. Okay, so, so social media, Google, Facebook, Twitter have decimated 
local media, right? Not just them. Craigslist also. Craigslist probably has had as much an impact on, on any of the other sources because it used to be that lots of media was funded by classified ads, which mm. no longer exists because they're all free on, on Craigslist. Same right. thing with Google. Google and Facebook has scooped up, I think it's something like 80% of ad dollars. Go to these two companies, right? Of online advertising. So when we look back on this and we see the decline of local media and what that will do to to local communities when there's nobody there to to follow the school board to follow the school board meeting to follow the city council meetings at the same time twitter is not that popular a a, a platform right only i think something like 10% of americans are on it's a, a pretty small number but it's the sort of platform that has an incredible influence because the tastemakers are there right the media is there spending all day on twitter and so the voice Twitter amplifies extremist voices. And so it gives the impression, if you're following Twitter, that the world is much more extremist than it, than, uh, than it actually is. And I mean that on, on both the right and the left. Um, if you're on Twitter, you're probably going to think that, there are, that, that Nazis have a bigger influence on American public than they actually do. And you're also going to think that Bernie Sanders is going to win, you know, win the Democratic primary. Yeah, it is, like I we did. Are, right, right. You know, and... It is proven over and over again that Twitter is not a good reflection of the real world. What it is, however, it influences the real world because it influences how people like me, people in the media, see the world because we are filtering everything through this platform instead of going out and speaking to people. I th- Yeah, and so it has this outsized impact and it, the, you know, journalism is taking its cues from Twitter culture. Exactly. And... And I do feel this disconnect because my day job, I work as a grocery store manager in the mountains of Western North Carolina. It's a salvage store. We work on feeding the community and it's in an industrial district of of the town. And um, I work with people who are Trump supporters, who are trans who are gay, who are women, who are witches, who are Christians, who are conservatives, and we all have to work together. We're all getting a paycheck together. We're all feeding people together. And that world, and then I log on to Twitter, and it is a completely different fucking world. And I'm like, my colleagues and I would be hurling stones at each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's you so might be. weird. Maybe there, you know, it's, I, it would be amazing to see that, you know, I bet there are cases where, you know, somebody's actually like, likes a coworker, they're friends in real life, and then it turns out they're like on Twitter battling each other out on, uh, you know, sock puppet accounts, maybe not even aware of it. <laughs> you know, th- that is one of the things that I really like about um, Western North Carolina, though, is the, uh, you do have the the tension between sort of the Asheville hippies coming into contact with the real world Avala- Avalanche. Yes, uh, it's you know, great. You know. I love it. Yeah, I love it, and I love it at my work because everyone needs to eat. You know, it's the universal bond that ties everyone together, and so we get super rich people, and then we get homeless people, and and like everyone in between, we get hippies that come down from their, you know, tents in the mountains, and then we get you know, vacationers from Florida. We get everyone and it is really good for me. And I'm I'm really worried about COVID for many reasons. But one of those reasons is that I think the workplace, having to go to work with people who disagree with you was one of the last places where people actually heard opposing views, right? And now, sure. <laughs> because yeah. because of that, because everyone's working from home now, maybe they're not having as much exposure to different 
opposing views. And uh, I think that's necessary. I think it's important to have that in one's life. Oh, I think I think you're absolutely right, which is one of the reasons I'm against things like, you know, the New York Times having that staffers having a freak out after the New York Times published an op-ed by Tom Collin, Tom Cotton. Um, I was opposed to that, even though I, I vehemently disagree with the man and his politics and everything he stands for. Absolutely. But I think you it's sometimes you need to actually force people to come to come into contact with ideas that they're not going to like. You just need to know about how the world is working outside of your bubble. And I thought after the 2016 election, the media would realize this. We would figure out we have deeply screwed up. We are deeply out of touch with the American public. We don't know what's going on. And the opposite has happened where we have just doubled down on, you know, on sort of blaming and shaming people for not being exactly like us. Yeah. And also, like, as a queer person myself, I want to know who the homophobes are. Yeah. And I want to be able to read what they say and know what they're thinking so that I have a better chance of survival. Like for me, having a diversity of opinion in the public square is really a matter of survival for me because I want to know what homophobes are thinking and why that makes my life better. That that improves my quality of life because I know how to avoid it <laughs> I, I know well, who's also, scary you know you know I, I think there's also something to be said for you know there's this uh, I think it's called contact hypothesis this idea that when you have people with disparate uh, beliefs or members of different races spending time together there it is more likely to change their perspective absolutely right? and and you can really see that when it comes to gay issues I mean when I was a kid growing up in western North Carolina there were no out gay people in my area. I, there were there was none. I went to a high school of a thousand people. I think there was one out gay kid in the nineties in our at, like in the theater department, you know, or the theater, you know, the star of the plays or whatever. Mer- mercilessly bullied for this, um, and this was not that long ago. And I think young young people don't realize just how how much society has changed in the last 20, 30 years when it comes to this one particular issue. And part of that is because people came out. Exactly. Harvey Milk. It's why Harvey Milk said everyone must come out because of suddenly. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I guess what I am hearing is and the way I think about this is talking is a way of thinking. And if we don't let people talk if we don't let people talk through some of their stupid ideas or stuff that we disagree with, if we don't let people work through that they will never improve. And I personally want a broad left. I want, I want a broad coalition that, that includes all different classes, all different people groups. I want a broad coalition of all kinds of minorities and, and classes working together. And the only way we can get that is if we let people talk and not shut right, them right. down. Yeah. Right. And I think this is one of the problems with um, with the sort of Nathan J. Robinsons of the world is that I, I would really like to know how many actual working class people Nathan J. Robinson knows. Yeah, you know, and people who don't gonna... people who don't dress like a plantation owner like he does. And right, I I right, love. Right. Don't get me wrong, I love him, and I personally think he's fucking iconic. But uh, <laughs> like I he does like, have a look. He has a he has a definite look. But yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, what you're going to find if you, you know, if anyone has ever worked in a restaurant or worked in a factory or worked in a grocery store is that I'm I'm going to say this as sensitively as I can. Working class people ain't always woke. Oh, my God. Yes. 
Oh in my fact, God. they're mostly not woke. Yes. And so if you want to have a, a movement that welcomes people into the left, people who might otherwise vote for Donald Trump, you're policing their microaggressions is not the way to welcome them into your movement. Policing their speech, you know, if any, like, have you ever worked in a restaurant? I have. Yeah. Right. So if you it's work filthy. in a kitchen, it, you're going to people are fucking it's, oh, filthy. It's sexist. It's racist. <laughs> but oftentimes, good natured. You yes. know, You know, it is. You know, like people tell racist jokes about their about the Ecuadorians. You know, uh, you know, washing the dishes, and the Ecuadorians say racist jokes right back. Like this is just a, and that's actually a bonding experience. It's not built in. It's not cruelty. It's just the way that people talk. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you if you if you problematize all of that, you are going to. These people are not going to come to your movement. Yeah, and and one thing that also really worries me, I worry about the mental health of queer people like us who are coming of age on Twitter because as a faggot growing up in Western North Carolina, I'm just like, you have to be resilient. And I do Oh my god, yeah. And I you do to, not yeah. I do yeah. not see this this delicate simultaneously delicate and brutal culture on Twitter cultivating the resiliency necessary. And when I see a lot of my fellow queer people really struggling on Twitter, expressing their rage, expressing their hurt, I see really deep pain and uh, because I've experienced that, you know, I, I remember like years ago when I first came out and I was all kinds of fucked up and just really, really struggling. And I lived online and it got to the point where I could only internalize stuff as an attack, like Father James Martin, who is a, a Catholic Jesuit, super pro gay. He would often come to the defense of gay people in the Catholic Church. And it got to the point where I all I could I could only see him as another white straight man using LGBT as a platform. And and there was this like deep hurt and rage inside of me. And eventually I just realized this is not healthy. I am hurting. I need to log the fuck off and go for a hike. Like and 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 so I really truly worry about a lot of LGBT people who are already in a vulnerable position. Because I do not think social media, I think a lot of a lot of it comes from pain, and I don't think that pain is being resolved in a healthy way on Twitter. I think it does not cultivate resiliency. I mean, and and like if I had the level of sensitivity that they have on Twitter, I would have killed myself a long fucking time ago. Like just being real, growing growing up in the South, I would have shot myself years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you can, you know, I think that's true across many populations. Um, victimhood is more prized than resiliency right now, which is uh, having an interesting effect on, uh, on on people's mental health. I agree. And I, I really, really, really worry about that. OK, well, uh, we could probably talk for much longer, but we're we're coming to the end. So I'll go ahead and wrap this up and ask you, where can people find you if they are interested in your work? So I have a podcast called Blocked and Reported um, that I, I host along with Jesse Single. Um, I'm on Twitter at Kitty Persog. I'm on Patreon. Uh, if you just search for Blocked and Reported, um, you should be able to find me. Fantastic. Well, Katie, it has been a pleasure speaking with you and you're welcome back anytime. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by the Jelly Rocks and Eleventy Seven. You can listen to them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. 
If you love my work and want to support it, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long or leaving a five-star review. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Media. You can find other shows like this one by going to rockcandyrecordings.com. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>